4: Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together—objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together.
2: I, Here hitting, we go. right, I'm hitting the buttons. We got it. Did we I hit the it. right button? We did. We're recording. Sometimes I'm the engineer on this show. Uh huh.
5: Next week you'll need to be. Sometimes I record without
2: gone. you. Oh, where are you going?
5: Uh, I'm going to. I'm going on a trip, a consulting trip with a church. No. So.
2: I, sometimes <laughs> when you're gone, I don't know how how to record things. Uh, it's
5: true. So you. But you'll have to. You'll have to figure it out next week.
2: All right. So. Well, I figured it out this week. This is the Gravity Leadership Podcast, and I'm one of your hosts, Matt Tebbe, mm-hmm. here with my good friend, uh, comrade. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, by the way, in arms. Growing up in the '80s. Comrade was like a dirty word. Oh
5: yeah, that was code. Yeah, for the communists. But I had to. Yeah.
2: My, my, my son is a it is a communist. My son you know, came home from camp and he's like, Dad, I have a friend who's named Comrade. Uh, I've never heard that name before. I was like, oh, That's weird. <laughs> it's probably right. Was it Conrad? It was Conrad. <laughs> but then I had to explain. I had to explain that Comrade actually means friend. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Comrade. Ben, yes. We're, yes joined comrade other, we're joined by two other. We're joined by two other guys. Who are comrades? Uh, Glenn Packiam is joining us all the way from Colorado. Is that right, Glenn? Colorado Springs. What's
3: up, guys? Colorado Springs.
1: That's right.
2: All right, welcome. And Seth Richardson's joining us all the way from Arkansas.
1: Arkansas, yep. Fable, Arkansas. Yeah, Fayetteville, that's great. Arkansas. All right,
2: guys, uh, We're we're doing a series on power, describing how Christians interact with power in healthy and unhealthy ways, holy and unholy ways. And Glenn and Seth have both written on Christian's approach to power uh, in uh, sociological terms and stuff, and I can't wait to have this conversation. But first, let's do some introductions. Glenn, will you give our listeners a brief intro to who you are?
3: Sure. I am a pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. I've been here for uh, almost 19 years. In a variety of roles, uh, currently am uh, one of the two associate senior pastors, and I uh, oversee and lead and preach at one of our congregations i 'm originally from Malaysia um, immigrated over here c- twice once as a younger child when my family came over uh, for a few years while my parents went to Bible school they went back we went back to Malaysia and then I came back out. Mm. To go to college and, uh, you know, met a girl, as the story goes, got <laughs> married, got a green card, uh, got became a citizen 10 years ago or so. So anyway, there's the nutshell.
2: Nice. Awesome. And some, a little known fact about Glenn, and tell me if this is right. You're actually an ordained Anglican priest. Is that right?
3: That is true. Yes, Looking, that happened.
2: Working at a non-denominational uh, church.
3: Yes, that's right. Yeah, a very, um, a very creative move on the part of the bishop and of my senior pastor. It required both of them to kind of think a little bit outside the box. So I was raised Anglican in Malaysia. My mom comes from a long uh, line of uh, Anglicans, hmm. but then moved away and kind of have been in non-denominational you know, Pentecostal charismatic churches hmm. for most of my life, but felt like there was a, a convergence happening with these things and, and that I was felt led along this journey of ordination, my bishop here. Ken Ross um, was really, really creative and thinking outside the box about it. So the, the basic idea is, I am ordained and I'm com- recommissioned or commissioned to serve in this non-denominational church.
2: That's huh. awesome. That's great. Three cheers for the bishop. Yep. Hip-hip. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just yep. do one. Just one cheer. Uh, yeah, that's great, Glenn. Awesome. Uh, thanks for that. And then uh, Seth. Seth, how about you? Yep. T- get what's your deal? Yeah. My deal,
1: uh, my deal is that I uh, lead a church plant here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's about two and a half years old. Uh, it's a it's an Anglican church plant, so we're all um, Anglicans here today. Um, yeah, and so that deal is that it involves uh, feeling like I'm uh, on a runaway train most days, trying to keep it on the tracks, and it's all a lot of fun.
2: Yeah.
5: Was that a what was that band? Runaway, Runaway Train. train Never going back. back. Kind of a one-hit wonder from the yeah. 90s. What was that band? Do you guys remember that? Uh, Soul Asylum. I just got it. Soul Asylum. <laughs> Soul Asylum. Was that, were you referencing Soul Asylum, Seth Richardson? I
1: know. It, was a, it was a deep reference. That's right, Ben. Thanks. Deep, now, Seth, did you yeah. grow up in the Fayetteville area? Are you from our, northwest Arkansas? No, I'm not. I'm from Arkansas. Um was born and raised in Arkansas, uh, spent some time in the Chicagoland area, uh, moved back to Arkansas in 2011, uh, was in Little Rock for a while, actually worked at an Anglican church there in Little Rock, was an associate uh, pastor there, and yeah, been up here in Northwest Arkansas for two and a half years. Very cool. Great.
2: Well, it's great to have you both on the podcast. You've each written an article on a website called Missy Alliance. If you haven't uh, seen that website or these articles, we'll link to both in the show notes and you can check it out. Um, and we, we read these articles and we were really f- interested in having you on to talk about how Christians interact with and intersect with, no pun intended, uh, ideas around intersectional- intersectionality and social justice, right? So there's this cultural moment we're in where people are beginning to wake up to abuses of power in all different arenas and domains, right? Um, So there's uh, male-female, there's race, there's uh, status, there's economics, uh, there's gender identity, all these power dynamics at work, and there's a bit of a steep learning curve for Christians to navigate the research, the outsider language, how do we engage and interact with this? And so if you're on if you're on social media, you'll often see grenades and bombs launched. Uh, you know, either social justice is the gospel, or social justice is the spawn of Satan, and it's the uh, biggest—it's it's part of the Antichrist uh, design to take down the church. And so uh, I think, Glenn, uh, you and Seth have written and thought about this in ways that are extremely helpful for us as we navigate this complex and confusing conversation. So let me give you a chance, Glenn— yeah, Ben, is that all right? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. You, you look like you were gonna either like talk yeah. to me or yeah. No, no. Was it a holy kiss you were coming in for? Yeah,
5: well, I was just you know just just appreciating what you're saying. Oh, thanks.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that, uh, Glenn. Can I give you a chance if you are coming in for a holy kiss? Just let me know ahead of time.
5: Yeah, I'll try to give right. you a heads up, uh, Glenn. I thought we were past that though in our relationship. So mm, I don't know. Yeah,
2: it feels like a big still can not
5: surprise you with that.
2: Uh, you know what? You know who, who did surprise with a holy kiss once? <laughs> Judas.
5: Oh well, that wasn't really a holy kiss. Oh, technically but, it, but
2: speaking. it was. Like I was reading the Psalms uh, yesterday, <laughs> right? And uh, um, and and the psalmist talks about uh, like kissing the sun, right? Yeah. It's it's a it's a sign of allegiance and like uh, yeah. confessing a faith. So Judas uses this sign of allegiance and right. commitment right. to betray Jesus, right?
5: Which makes it unholy. But but yeah, that's yeah. A, that is a fascinating. Uh, symbolic, he's reversing the symbolic meaning of the uh, gesture.
2: Well, what I thought is, that Judas guy isn't as good as everybody thinks he is. Uh, anyway, back <laughs> to this conversation. Be villain. He might He might be a bad dude. Uh, Glenn, would you give us a brief introduction to uh, your main point of your article and why you felt the need to write it?
3: Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, th- you know, I, I, I want to clarify that I didn't write it to address the questions about justice and the gospel. Uh, I, I believe with all my heart that if the gospel is very simply an announcement that Jesus is King, uh, then justice is absolutely at, at the heart of it because we're supposed part of our work is not only to call people to surrender their lives to the kingship of Jesus, ethics, but also that uh, things begin to resemble the way the world should look when Jesus is King. Uh, the, the hungry are fed, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So, amen. So I I, I was not. Trying to get in the fray of that uh, conversation, and I also want to uh, maybe put some, uh, lay some other pieces out here. Um, th- there has been on some other popular kind of neo-reformed blog sites the debate about terminology like intersectionality and cultural Marxism and all of that. And I just want to say, I, I I am not um, trying to address those terms. Uh, per se. And many of those terms are fraught with a particular history that I am a novice to. Um, and many of them come with a history of being certain terms being used in, in, uh, racially oppressive ways and yes. all of that. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to come into this conversation because of those terms or because of that debate on justice. Uh, the impetus for me writing my piece was that I felt, um, my observation is that um, power dynamics are a very important perspective to consider, but they're a lousy first principle. Hmm. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you're when you're engaging in a debate, you kind of need some first principles, some some things that don't need to be demonstrated, but then you kind of build from there, and then you critique each other's arguments based on whether or not they are flowing from those said first principles or not. Um, but, but power dynamics are, are, are lousy first principles because they end arguments. They don't begin it. They're not a premise. Um, you, you can't start by saying, well, you're in power, uh, therefore you're, um, you're going to be an oppressor.
2: And, yeah, and- so what you're saying is like uh, if I'm in a conversation with someone, just to put flesh on this, uh, yeah, because yeah. I'm, a, I'm a white guy who is uh, heteronormative mm-hmm. um, and a Christian – Automatically, yeah. my perspective is delegitimized because of those those ethnic and sociological categories.
3: That's correct. That's correct. And and we could take you know take uh, a, an example, say from some of the recent conversations about abortion issues. So if a man says any opinion about abortion uh, or the life in the womb being, uh, you know, all of a sudden that opinion is no longer evaluated based on scientific claims about when life begins and heartbeats and all of that, all of a sudden it's simply immediately invalidated because the person saying it is a male. So (laughs) what I'm trying to say is there, there is a misuse of power dynamics and I wish I would have said it uh, maybe this bluntly in in the piece, but the misuse of power dynamics is when it is used as a first principle, a premise (laughs) instead of a perspective. Uh it's an important perspective. Huh. And I think I think Seth does a good job in his piece saying, look, if we're going to be faithful, we have to wrestle with who's in power and who's not. And I agree.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. So yes. so Seth, maybe yes. use that as a jump jumping off point for you to describe mm-hmm. uh your central thesis. Maybe Glenn, um maybe you want to expand on what Glenn said and why you decided to write your piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, and I, I want to echo uh, Glenn's caveat that there are, uh, are some technical pieces of this discussion that I'm a novice to and that aren't motivating uh, uh, my thoughts. So I, I'm in the same boat as Glenn there. Yeah. So um, I, I think that Glenn and I are, are headed in the same directory or uh, trajectory in a lot of ways. And what I saw was an opportunity uh, to f- continue to fill out that trajectory. They're actually there. And hearing you talk now, Glenn, there may be some methodological differences between how we get onto that uh, trajectory. And that will be an interesting thing to work out. But uh, so, you know, Glenn, Glenn's main point was these power dynamics aren't uh, enough, like as a self-referential in, like unto themselves, like they don't do the kind of work that we need to do in order to form a place of fullness and hope and, uh, and new life for everybody. Like they don't do that work on their own. Mm. Um, but, uh, the main point that I was, uh, I wanted to to push into was that even though they aren't enough, um, they're still, ne- and Glenn already said this, they're still necessary for, um, being able to, Uh, imagine, and then inhabit a way of faithfulness with a Christological vision. And that's what I know that Glenn and I both share is like, what's the Christological vision here? I think, and this may be the the point where there may be a slightly different methodological approach, um, is that it's my conviction that in order to come to some type of uh, shared vision, um, I, I wouldn't use the language first principles, but I mean, that's the same kind of thing. In order to get access to a first principle, um, I have to first reckon with power. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and so uh, that that's sort of what I was getting at. And, and then, of course, raises the question, well, what does that look like? And how do you do that in a way that doesn't essentialize um, identity uh, in some of the ways that we see happening with identity politics hmm. um but that but that's my big point is that like there's this history so you know we're not in neutral space right yeah. like yeah. we we're in a we're in a we live in a world in which uh things have been turned upside down from god's uh creation intent for humans and people have been dehumanized in space and bodies have been disfigured and dehumanized hmm. um and so uh we got here somehow <laughs> Um, and, and, and one of my convictions is that the way that we got there, uh, was, uh, um, trying to articulate a first principles Mm. without first reckoning with power. It's good. And so what, what first Hmm. principles became was really a, like a self-reflection of the people in power Mm -hmm. in the name of first principles. And so then those first principles got laid across people, who didn't have a voice in articulating what the principles were. And then those principles became dehumanizing. Yes. So, uh, so so let me, let me, that's very
3: good, Seth. That's very good. And I, and I'm, I'm glad you're, you're pushing back at the right, the right gap in my piece. I mean, I, I I do think you're right because one could, one could come away reading my piece saying, Oh, it's very simple. Then all we got to do is reflect on Jesus. And, uh, and, Mm. uh, and then we arrive at these principles, but you're absolutely right that, Many, many, many uh, Christians have reflected on Jesus and arrived at the wrong yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. conclusions about his life, and then use that as a way to oppress others. And and we bring our own fallenness to the conversation.
0: Mm.
2: Yes, Seth. Mm. Let me let me put some flesh on what you're describing. I want to I want to historically locate this conversation to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. So what you're saying is is that um, let's take let's take the invention of race right in sort of the um, the manifest destiny and sort of legitimizing slavery in you know the 14th, 15th, 16th century. So the, the the white Christian people who created the categories of race based upon different gradients of skin color to legitimize uh, in slavery and take possessing of land uh, and sort of putting a manifest destiny sort of divine uh, right to seize property that wasn't being um, cultivated to its highest potential as crea- uh, fulfilling the creation mandate. So all that's wrapped up together in sort of the Catholic Do- Catholic Doctrine of Discovery and whatever. You're saying that those people actually did use race as a first principle without knowing it, without acknowledging it and seeing it? Is that what you're saying? Seth Richardson.
1: Yeah, yeah uh i think so Matt. i again there there are some people who have a lot more expertise in that history and um than i do uh so it's partly that and partly just the theological reflection itself even if we're not talking about race yeah it's the 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 frame of the theological frameworks themselves about like what is good like what counts like what aesthetics the good and and the true and the beautiful like like who gets to define those yeah those things um, so it, it's not in and of itself only the the like the racial component, even though all that's like bound up in it but but the very the very act or the very presumption that there could be a um, a ethical or theological uh, reflection. Um, apart from reckoning with our located embodied realities as if we could. So that's the move. That's the, that's the the, the move that initiated all this is that mm-hmm. those things could be disconnected from, yeah. but it's like that type of reflection could be disconnected from our embodiedness. Yeah. But, and I, and I think Seth, my attempt to sort of, um, to caveat that
3: was when I, in the article, I talk about the need for the global and historic witness of the church. Mm-hmm. So there is a, mm-hmm. there's a mitigating effect now, you know, we're 2000 years now long into the story. So we have the benefit of that, of saying, okay, where has the church in the global and historic witness of the church kind of stood against this? And so let's take the issue, the, the question of race for an exa- uh, for a minute. I um, I haven't done a, a terrible amount of reading on this, and so I don't want, by any means, to give our listeners the impression that this is, a, a, you know, the knockdown argument to it. But I would question uh, the, the notion that this arose out of Christian Europeans, um, and, and I would like to suggest that it actually arose more out of mid-1800s, uh, enlightenment rationalism—that the more secular Europe got, specifically England. So there is a British social scientist in the 1850s, 1860s who develops race theory. And when he first gave his paper on this in Oxford, I believe he was he was mocked. I mean, because Christianity still sort of had this this deeper hold on people's conscience and, oh. and sense of what's right. And so it, it was it was absolutely mocked. But in the decades to follow, the more science began to sort of eclipse uh, religion or or eclipse Christianity. In other words, the more secular the British Empire got, the more willing it was to adopt race theory and a hierarchy of uh, what was called the color bar, you know, from dark to Mm -hmm. light. Mm. And 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 uh, Indians. I mean, Gandhi in South Africa appeals to the color bar in the late 1800s to say, "Hey, I deserve better treatment because I'm fairer skinned Hmm. uh, than than Africans." I mean, Mm. it's a terrible thing, but it just shows how racism is relative all over the world. It happens. Hmm. But my point here is that is to mitigate for our own kind of power dynamics and locatedness that Seth's talking about. We ought to rely on the global and historic witness of the church. So what would Christians really say about race theory? Um, Well, there's a long witness that would go all the way back to Paul that would say, wait a minute, we can't make divisions that way. And that, in fact, that argument or that theory is a construct not germane to Christianity, but to some sort of pseudoscience of the post-enlightenment era
5: which perhaps mm-hmm. then the church in its sort of realizing its grasp on power was sort of slipping there could almost be this uh, assumption and I don't know the history of this but you know uh a an attempt to sort of appease the powers that be by saying oh yeah we can legitif- we can legitimi- legitimize this theologically for you if you'd like you know we can we can point to the bible and say that this is what's there If you like, Mm -hmm. we had we had Mako uh, Nagasawa on our podcast um, a a little while ago, and he uh, he was talking about this, where he was saying that these the originally race theory and all this stuff was was essentially heresy, um, Christian heresy that the church unfortunately adopted um, from that from that thing. So, um,
2: yeah, can I ask? Can I press into that a little bit, Glenn? Sure. So if I if I if I see race theory as a extra biblical construct, actually, you know, half of the New Testament's written to uh, help Jews and Gentiles figure out how to be one people when exactly. when their entire sociological political imagination is that they're two. Um, right. Without that, right, we wouldn't have that great timeless uh, book of Romans. Um, but <laughs> so anyway, there's there's this there's that on one side. Then there's me me as a white guy who has benefited the most from creating from the racist structures and systems in place no one's benefited more than me telling people that we shouldn't talk that we shouldn't actually have race theory that is the thing that sort of identified the privilege that I get from mm. race so now the privileged person is telling those who believe in race theory that it's unhelpful and unChristian, which, uh, I I just can't. My imagination stops there because, um, of co- of course I'm going to think that, right? According to race theory, <laughs> it's like a it's like a trap for me. Yeah, no, Glenn, give me an imagination it, it, for how not, that's not a trap.
3: Right, and this is why I say we kind of we kind of end up chasing our tail without some extra way of evaluating, you know, and and mm. so again. It's absolutely important to name our own locatedness and our own bias and how we're misapprehending something. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a different criteria for truth. And that, that essentially was what my article was about. It was about epistemology. Mm. like uh, Epistemic claims are not evaluated solely on the basis of if they come from a privileged person or not. Um, I mean, I, I trust that we're, because we're Christians, we sort of believe in a sense of some version of revelation, some, some sense of God self-disclosing. And so that, that it, itself um, is meant to be an outside um, factor. Now, of course, our perception of that truth that God is disclosing is tainted by our own locatedness, blah, blah, blah. But still yeah. must be something. If, if there, otherwise, there's no way into uh, uh, truth other than our own extremely relativized perception of it.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. And that, that's good. And that's the point where, uh, at least from my, cause I'm, I'm mad. I'm in the same position. I feel like I'm, I'm wrestling with the same thing that you're wrestling with. And so what, what I'm trying to wrestle with and recognize is that in order to, um, lean into a, like a Christologically grounded epistemology to throw out, like, way too many big words in one <laughs> sentence <laughs> Right. Um, in order to lean into that Christ centered way of knowing and thinking that the way that the only way that I know, know how to do it. Um, if not just considering the reality of that, we do exist in a disfigured reality. Then in order to do that requires me reckoning with power. And, and I just have to reckon with the fact that like, because of because there's like a lot of work to do in that space, that might mean um that there's gonna be misunderstanding for a while uh about definitions and terms because like I just got some reckoning to do um mm-hmm. with with uh, with my own uh situation with why we are where we are. So mm-hmm. like, like, so methodologically, um, that's exactly right. It's like we, we need a, a way of thinking and knowing that's grounded in Jesus. But in order to get – I can't access that epistemology outside of – it's sort of like my first principle is repentance. Yeah, good, good, good. So like – so it's – yeah, and, and that act hmm. of repentance is that like is my reckoning – uh so a qu- here's a question that that I'm like learning to ask myself. And and th- I think this is a question that's bound up in the act of repentance is um who who built this space? Mm. Uh who who was who is it built to benefit? Um and how do I intersect and re and interact with this space and, and what do I benefit from and, and what's my relationship to it and to others? Mm. Um Good. Yeah, so so yeah, I mean that's my basic methodological point is like yes, let's like the only way to access the kind of knowing that can actually bring healing in a new humanity uh I I I need to reckon with power and that's actually an act of repentance. It's an act of um imitating uh Jesus like Philippians 2, a reckoning with the authority and and giving it over, laying it down. So
2: Yeah. Uh, How does that hit I, you, Glenn?
1: sorry
3: yeah i love that i love that seth uh and i think i think repentance is a wonderful way to name a first principle to say god have mercy on me you know forgive me for the ways that i'm i'm complicit in this stuff and and to never to never be sure that everything we're seeing is all there is to see i mean that that would be the height of of arrogance you know so uh, always be willing to say there's more to this Mm. issue than i see and I, I, I think, I mean, I think that's the other piece of, of, of um, my initial article was to say there is a complexity to situations that, it, in an ironic way, power dynamics is oversimplifying. You know, or, mm-hmm. or the way some people use power dynamics are oversimplifying yes. because um, there are there. Are, I'm a first generation immigrant, but I'm in a situation of power. You know, I'm in this church, and you know, mm-hmm. so so there's. Uh, there's ways of, of complexifying it and naming all the factors, and and to recognize that different experiences are going to be different. So you you might ask me what was it like to grow up in a former British colony on the other side of the world, and I might tell you my experience. But but that by no means is that meant to be the uh, the standard take for everybody's yes. story, right? So yeah, yeah. so uh, again, it's it, it's good to name where the dynamics are and who is in power mm-hmm. and who is not. But there's also a sense of saying, well, well, there's more complexity here. And, and what Seth is saying is there's a there's probably some complicit, a complicity, complicitness in this, yeah. you know?
5: Yeah. Um,
3: the other thing I would want to say about reckoning with power is that you mentioned Jesus in, in Philippians 2, and I keep, I, I'm reading through John's gospel right now, and um, uh, it's so enigmatic, you know, the way Jesus is speaking to the, the Pharisees and religious leaders, and John 7 has this whole scene where, uh, people are scoffing at him because the, the essentially the country bumpkins are his followers, and so the religious elites are like, oh, you know. Now, if you want, you could take this story and and say, aha, here it is again. You know, the blogger so-and-so is being scoffed by seminary professor so-and-so. But really, maybe they are right about sexual ethics, and and they're you know the unsophisticated people are being persuaded by this uh, popular podcast. But you know we know the Greek and da da da.
2: Hypothetically and, speaking, Raycliff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> well, pick an example. I mean, there's li- there's dozens yes. of examples, yes. and I every week is another email from a congregant saying, "I was listening to this podcast the other day," and. You know, mm. And I and I have to say, okay, if I play the religious authority card and say, well, let me just tell you, the you know that's mm. not what it means, it's going to backfire right. in the way that it backfired for the religious elites in John seven. But the point from John seven is not that Jesus was on the wrong side of human power. The point is that Jesus came from God, and and again, this is what I'm trying to get at when I say, how do we evaluate? Um, what is good theology and what is bad theology. And we can't just say, well, this one is on the side of the people and on the underdog. And this one is on the side of institutional authority. Well, okay, but what else?
2: Yeah. So here's, Hmm. let me see if I can recapitulate what you're saying, Glenn. Uh, This is how I'm hearing. This is how I'm uh, synthesizing what you're saying. Tell me if this is fair and charitable. When we get, when we get caught up in frames of, like worldly frames that define power, like race theory, right? So so then when somebody comes to me with an LGBTQ question and me being a, a white straight guy, like there's there's nothing I can say, right? I'm, aut- I'm automatically sort of at a, all I can do is agree and affirm and uh, learn, right? That's the only posture I can take that's fair or just. Um, what, what you're saying is basically that frame of power is antichrist meaning
3: not automatically not automatically there is something christ-like in listening to the people and coming yes to to
2: yes yes so me listening receiving learning growing is is christ-like but but the way that power is defined in the world isn't the way that jesus embodies and defines power in the kingdom of god there's a yeah. different locus center of what power means And what it means to have power. So the reason you don't fire off like a you know a proof texted uh, theological tome to your congregant is because that actually is a there's a first principle in that email of what power is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Uh yes. Uh and
3: and (laughs) that would be a Pharisee paradigm of power to just throw the book at someone. So the, the, the Jesus paradigm of power uh, might be to say, well, let me wash your feet. Tell me why this issue is important. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and and, yeah. and so that's the John 13. Yeah. You finally get to the point in John's gospel where Jesus, knowing that the father had entrusted him with all things, to so God began to yeah. wash their feet. So now we see it. The power doesn't come from his popularity with the, the hoi polloi. The popular- <laughs> his authority comes from God, from but God, it is yes. used for the washing of feet of the herd. yeah.
5: So here's what I'm hearing in this is I, I think the two ditches, the two temptations that are easy to come by because and I think they're easy to come by because they are framed within the world's definition of power. One is throw the book at people, right? One is I know the right things, so listen to me. I have a mm-hmm. right to speak and my perspective is valid. Listen, right? So that's the that, that's one perspective. And then what what gets uh you know The, the, other the antidote to that. Right, maybe. the antidote to that is, no, you can't speak, say nothing, yeah. <laughs> only, only listen, we're speaking now. So like both of those frames are, are like, we see what's real, and you have to shut up and listen. And the Christ-like paradigm is, I mean, what you talked about earlier, Seth, it's repentance, it's, yes. I can speak, but I, ha- really. I have to reckon with, I, I do speak from a location, I have a perspective, but I can say, here's what it is, tell me what you see. In yeah. this right, and so it's it's both speaking and listening, it's you know washing feet and holding authority. It's you know it's it's all of those things
1: together, yeah. rather
5: than splitting it and thinking, well, I either have a right to speak or I, I can't say anything.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I like how the image of uh, John thirteen that Glenn is drawing out here. Yeah. Because that means that, like, faced with this question, because, I mean, we're talking about a contextual question. We're, we're talking contextual theology here. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we lean into this situation without just asserting our authority over people or being absorbed into the existing, uh, like, things that are at play? Mm-hmm. And what, what that requires is not just um, certain ideas or thoughts about things, but it, a- it actually, like, requires a posture. Yes, And so that's what's like so helpful for me is that on the other side of repentance, that's the model that I'm working with is on the other side of repentance is like that first thing that gives way to a, uh, a method of, um, communion is the, the way that I summarize it. Like that, that, uh, and I see, and this is important for me too, because it does apply to, um, addressing issues of a segregated reality and racial issues, but it also just applies to almost every discipleship situation that i find myself in like in my in my congregation like with people Mm -hmm. like i can like assert my identity and picture of what people's lives should look like in the situation i could uh uh get absorbed into uh the uh things that they are wrestling with and the lives that um they're struggling with like or there's a, a different way of communion yeah. of coming with of of washing feet that together yes. like a new identity a new way forward together is shaped in that act of of self-giving love that posture that's beautiful seth that's really beautiful
2: boom so and
1: i i, I thought one of the
3: beautiful things about your piece seth was talking about the segregated reality and talking about um the history of 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 how uh, you know white european immigrants in america have treated African American slave and, and slave obviously slavery, but then even in the in the recent decades, post-segregation errors and all of that. I, I I wanna say I was not thinking about um that context when I wrote my piece. Now now to to my you know you know maybe great uh, oversight there, but I, I wasn't trying to address um, black theology, say versus versus some other kind of kind of thing. What what I was thinking about is the more generic statements that people make, such as "I'm only reading uh, dead white guys," you know, and I need to read. And I, I get it; it's important as a person of color. I, I hope people read uh, my works. Should they be mm-hmm. more, you know? But <laughs> but but I also sort of resent the kind of pushback of like, "Well, how how dare you read NT Wright and?" Uh, you know, Moltmann and all these other people, be- simply because they're white. And yes. I want to say,
2: well, can
3: we have a more interesting discussion about certain versions uh, certain of theology?
2: Yes. Mm. So, that's mm. good. is it too simplistic then to say, the world's question about power is, who's in charge? The kingdom's question of power is, who has the capacity to love? Hmm. Hmm. Is it too simplistic to even...
3: That's a good mic drop moment, you know?
2: (laughs) (gasps) That's been another gravity leadership. No, I, I I guess for me, I keep coming back to this. The whole reason we're doing this series is because we've got power issues in the church, abusive relationships. We don't know our relationship to... Uh, national power and also ecclesial power is jacked up. People are leaving churches by the hundreds a day. There's um, abuse, uh, not only sexual, but emotional and uh, spiritual abuse happening. Uh, narcissism is rampant. And um, even in these conversations, it seems like we have a fetish and a preoccupation with worldly power in our churches. And and we don't have a robust imagination that that love is powerful, mm-hmm. love can get the job done. Mm-hmm. And love is the ethos, the atmosphere of the Trinity and the kingdom of God. Mm. And what I hear you naming for us, Glenn and Seth, is this, this is why love's so important. Because if we don't have love at the center of—if uh, love isn't a first principle, we'll get power wrong, and then we'll, we'll capitulate to the world's struggle mm. over something that ultimately won't exist. <laughs> in the new creation, yeah. like this question of who yeah. gets to tell other people what to do. Yeah,
5: and I, I, would connect. I want to connect for our listeners as well. Like when what you're calling love, I, I, hear Seth calling communion. Yes. Right? So there is, there is that's a synonym I, for me. Right, by the right. Way. It's not like a th- feeling thing or a sentimental thing or whatever. But it, but so I think, I think what's important there is to realize. Yes, we do, we do get power wrong. We, we think that it is like who gets to say what other people have to do right? Who gets to say what other people have to do? But rather, it's, reco- it's letting go of that for a second and saying, maybe the more powerful thing is if I can connect with this person in front of me that I don't understand, or who is kind of making me a little agitated and angry, or who I don't agree with, like that there's a power in connecting with that person, and then something, something new emerges out of that communion that I couldn't have imagined before I committed myself to it. And that yeah. is the manifestation of the power of the kingdom, whatever that is, whatever yeah. comes out of that.
1: Yeah, and part of and what I want to register too is that, from my situatedness, is that in order to do that, like in 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 the situation that I'm in, in order to do that, that may mean that, like, I don't feel that great about the terms of agreement for a while. Yeah. It's like, cause I, like I want to reach that place. Like where we have, like Glenn is describing, like where there's a more interesting conversation about like mm. terms that we can agree on. But it's like, that's part of what I have to lay down and love. True. Is it like, I, there may be a season in which like, I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to feel great about <laughs> that. Uh, and, and yeah. So, hmm. cause part of, part of, um, I think the, the struggle, uh, is that they're, um, w- sorry guys, I just lost my train of thought cause I'm in a parking lot. <laughs> 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 it's so a interesting stuff happening. Trying to have conversations in a, in there, a car. There it is. is. That's lot. the struggle. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, suffi- suffice it to say that, um, that part of the work, um, oh, I remember what I was going to say is. Is, is that like we got here for a reason. Yeah. yeah. And part of the contextual work, and I'm, uh, uh, this is, I think uh, uh, this language comes from Soong Chan Ra, is that like there are dead bodies in the room.
5: <laughs> well, yeah. And like
1: I do want to move to a positive proposal, but before I'm, I'm, I in my situatedness, like try to move too quickly to a positive proposal, like I have to reckon with myself and and reckon with the reality. Of, of what's going on in me and what's going on in those around me, even if it means that there's going to be a season where I have to say, like, I'm just not going to be able to, like, yeah. move toward the kind of positive right. proposals. Even,
5: even if that's the result of somebody projecting onto you things that don't belong to you, right? You, you might... You, it's like you resemble the people who just killed all these people in the room. All these dead bodies yeah. are, are here because of somebody who looks a lot like you, and so I, I'm having a hard time receiving from you. And as somebody who is, you know, who has power... Culturally speaking, I think one of the moves that Christ would have us make is to say, "Okay, I get it, I get it," and and maybe there's a season where you know I don't say as much as I want to hmm. or no, yeah.
3: Well, and on the and on the flip side, for the person you know who's struggling with that resentment or that negative association, the mm-hmm. move Christ would want them to make would be forgiveness and generosity. And I know that 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 can sound cheap, but I. I think if we don't if we don't have those mutual reciprocal movements, yes. that's the cycle of grace. Is that Amen. that there is repentance on the one hand, and there is embraced on the other, and and there needs mm-hmm. to be a both. And I, I recognize this, guys. I, I've been in, uh, I I think I I have been in some rooms where the tone has turned so uh, antagonistic against. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Against white people, to be honest, and I I found myself mm. extremely uncomfortable in those settings, because mm. everything is thrown in this bucket of badness, you know, and it's all oppressive, and it's all racially motivated, and it's all like, I just want to say, I I don't I don't think that, and I think that's a lazy take. So if, mm. if we are going to, if if people on one side are going to be called to repent of their sins. Then specificity is going to help us here, mm. and and not to just say, "Well, y'all are just this racist, you know, white theology, you know." Well, I I don't know that that's true, and that's why I want to get I want to get precise even about our history, and this is my little maybe the mistake of the article was including anything about about empire, <laughs> but. But even, even the blanket ways which empires just dismiss them, say, hang on a minute, every empire was very different in that age of empires. And we are naive if we think that if, if the British hadn't ruled that better, that there would have been no empires. People were going to take over other parts of the world. That's what the 18, 1700s, 1800s were about. <laughs> yeah. 16, right? So. So in some ways, the the question was maybe in what way was Christianity a restraining force in the British uh, Empire in ways that it was not in other empires or even in later iterations of the British Empire? Why were the British in some ways better in India than they were in Africa? I I think I want to think more deeply about that Hmm. rather than to just say, well, you know, all of Europe was the doctrine of discovery just doctrine of discovery and i've heard mark charles make that stuff and i've heard i've heard others make those arguments and to be to be candid that's what gets my blood boiling because i think it's a lazy take
2: yes Hmm. so Mm. next podcast we'll have you and mark charles (laughs) didn't didn't mark charles just announce his uh candidacy for presidency (laughs) i think he's running for president isn't he i
5: think it was a joke i think it was like a it was like a Is is that right? I don't know. I I think it was like he announced his candidacy, but then he was actually talking about something
2: else. (coughs) Okay, well, sorry, fake news. Uh, (laughs) So maybe to close here, and Glenn, you started doing this with us, but brass tacks, ground floor, what difference does this make? If if we are going to center our posture and presence in these conversations, not based upon worldly frames of power, but in this canonic repentance, communion, loving posture... How does that make a difference in your pastoral ministry, in your marriage, in your neighborhood, right? And what you do on a day-to-day basis? Maybe, maybe some bullet points or even like, I don't know if there's stories that you can share without, you know, ruining mm-hmm. somebody's life. Mm-hmm.
3: No, that's really good. I mean, I think it is helpful to, to listen. Uh, to listen to somebody else's experience of the world, somebody else's experience of church. Um, somebody else's experience of uh, my theology that we're never just uh, dealing with ideas, we're always dealing with how they are incarnated, mm. um, and even how others are experiencing them. So, just to explain, just to I have to be more patient at saying, Tell me why you think that, tell me why that bothers you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not to play armchair psychologist, you know that kind of curiosity to say, "Tell me more about about this." Um, that, that it's never really uh, just about ideas. But then, um, uh, I think being willing to voice someone else's pain, you know, um, mm. uh, I, I think mm. that, I think that is important. I have in many many sermons uh, referenced white supremacy and and referenced. Uh, the, the long history of oppression that African Americans just this last Sunday, a couple couple days ago, and it 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 is always met with the strongest gratitude and applause from mm. from people who relate to that and say, wait, "Wait, wait, wait, that is my story." Thanks for saying that. Thanks for yes. talking about redlining in our neighborhoods, and thanks mm-hmm. for talking about this. And that. You know, so, so voicing someone else's pain is a is a big part of this as well. Hmm. Uh, and and then I think uh, I, I think. Um, just to treat, don't universalize from the particular, uh, particularize particularize from the universal, uh, meaning don't take one person's story and then arrive at, yes. at universal conclusions about this. That is a massive temptation that we have. Uh, particularize from the universal, mm. so, um, resist the temptation
1: to move the other way. Yeah, that's good.
2: Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate it. Mm. That's great. How about for you, Seth?
1: Yeah, so two, uh, two examples. One is kind of a, a, a more structural one and one is more on the personal level. Uh, one thing that I am i haven't done a great job of in the past two and a half years, but that I'm trying to take steps um, to doing is, is reckoning with the segregated reality of our city mm-hmm. and particularly the ways that that is manifested in the geography, in the spatial displacement here in Fayetteville. And recognizing that, uh, in order to get a sense of what that, how that is, how that came to be, that I have to talk to people who see it in ways that I don't see it. Um, so I'm seeking out relationships with um, people of color who can help me understand both the history of how things came to be and how they experience just spatially, geographically reality here. Yes. So mm-hmm. seeking out. This looks like. And then uh, on, the, on the personal level or on the pastoral level, one of the things that I recognize is, is my tendency in discipleship to, um, to not assume that people within themselves and in communities have the um, language and the resources already there to form, um, uh, to step into God's new creation in their life. And so, what I mean by that, that is, like, I'm I'm more apt to give people a a thing, like, here's the language you can use, here's the system you can use. You can, um, experience transformation in God's and in, in your life, God's transformation in your life by like doing what I'm saying, mm-hmm. but rather like, um, uh, moving into uh, as a as a first principle, communing with people, sharing with them, dwelling with them, like listening to uh, the. Experiences and language that they already experience, mm. and then forming out of the language and experience that already exists in their life and in their culture, I guess, to form uh, and to imagine ways of God's transformation and new life through mm. that.
5: Hmm. Yeah.
1: Really
2: powerful. It's really good. Yep. Thank really you both. Thank you both for this time and for this um, stimulating conversation. I mean, this is, you're both a blessing to the church and mm-hmm. to our listeners, just the hard work you're doing to clarify how we relate in these cultural tsunamis, basically, where we feel like we have to take sides mm-hmm. and throw ourselves in camps mm-hmm. and, and batten down the hatches and defend and protect. And I think the, the way of repenting, communing, love, and listening, like you said, Glenn, is the way forward. So may your tribe increase.
5: Yep. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Yeah,
0: thanks.
4: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media, too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.